We believe you have a story to share. For 2,000 years, humankind has believed in the power of story. In healthcare, we're finding ways to better heal those who are in front of us. Join us as we explore healing stories now. Well, I want to welcome everyone to another edition of Healing Stories Podcast. And it's my great pleasure and honor tonight to have uh, Dr. Nikki with us, who I can tell you uh, is special Greshel. And <laughs> one of the things that uh, we always do on Healing Stories Podcast is we ask our guests if they would just tell us who they are. So, Dr. Nikki, could you tell us who you are? Sure. So I'm Nikki Greshel. I was born Nikki Evans and uh, born in Lexington, Kentucky, moved around a lot because my dad's job and landed in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where I met your lovely wife on the Oshkosh West uh, golf team, where we became best friends, really good friends, and have maintained that friendship ever since. So that's why I'm sitting here in your kitchen. But um, I, a little bit more about me, I'm, like I said, from Oshkosh, went to the University of Minnesota for undergrad, um, decided pretty early on in high school, I wanted to go to medical school, wanted to be a family doctor. And so was prepping for the um, MCAT, the entrance exam for medical school and took an MCAT prep course where there was a teacher there. His name was Ryan Greshel. And he, uh, yeah, taught me everything I needed to know. I took the test. I did terribly and was out and about and called him and said, hey, you should come out. The test went terribly, but like, let's get a drink. And he came out and I told him I had a crush on him and we've been together ever since. So that's the story. And then we moved to back to the Milwaukee area for more training. And then we eventually settled in Duluth, Minnesota. So that's where we're at now. And I'm a family doc and he's a liver pancreas surgeon. You both have this uh, way about you that cares deeply about human beings. And it's obvious. And uh, your ability to kind of have a family that is medical, uh, for most people, uh, that's not always something that is common. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look back and, and how you are building your own life now, uh, how, do you, how do you have a balanced family life with two physicians um, and two kids? Yeah. And, and I mean, what are some of the things, because I know a lot of our listeners would say, my gosh, I mean, how, do, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. How do you find me, the meaning and balance and what you're establishing as your family? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of it was I went to medical school not because I wanted a label or to be prestigious, but because I wanted to, as cheesy as it sounds, help people. So I feel like I kind of went into the field for kind of what I felt were the right reasons. And then that helped me stay on that path and also always knowing that I always wanted to have a family. I always knew that very early on. And so I made that a priority in choosing a specialty that I didn't, I didn't do neurosurgery. I knew, I knew that I couldn't be the best neurosurgeon I wanted to be and be a a present parent and spouse. So, um, it worked out well that family medicine is where my heart was and that's where I landed. And I happened to find like the most amazing balanced, goofy, quirky, funny, uh, good-hearted, faith-driven, wonderful man and my husband. So we just kind of make it work. We got lucky. It is amazing that um, you step back and look at how it is that you become who you are. And there are a lot of uh, turns that you wouldn't have predicted. Mm -hmm. And 
are there things as you look back, especially in terms of medical school or places where you just say, boy, I'm really glad that I got through that, mm-hmm. that I, that I didn't give up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I, so I took that MCAT. I did terribly, like I said, and I did not get in the first time. Um, and I could have easily said, okay, well, I'll just pick a different path. I'll, you know, maybe I'll go the nursing route or I'll do, um, you know, PA school or maybe I'll teach science or, you know, but I just knew I always wanted to be that family doc, that person that was someone else's person that they could go to. So, um, I stuck with it and I just got more experience. I worked as a nursing assistant, um, got literally got my hands dirty and like got to know patients on a very personal level where they were at their sickest, like on a medical surgical floor in a hospital. Um, and you know, little did I know that that actually like worked out perfectly for personally for my layout because then Ryan graduated from medical school when I was done with that year off. We both, he got into, um, I got into medical school in Milwaukee and then he matched to surgery residency there. So like every, all the cards just kind of lined up for us. And had I gotten in the first year, it would have been very different and very messy. So it just worked out well. And I would have never, at that time it was, you know, the biggest disappointment I had ever had. You know, I think when you are pre-med, you kind of always like, you you did well in high school and then you did well in college. And then finally you get to this level where you're like, wow, I'm a really, really small fish in an enormous pond and I'm not that smart anymore, you know? So um, it's a huge reality check, and it, but it was the right one. And I feel like it was really kind of meant to be. So yeah, <coughs> looking back, I'm I'm thrilled. And I had that year off to really, I don't know, just kind of realize it's what I really wanted and get to know my future husband better and continue friendships and travel and do things I would have never done otherwise. So There's so much um, in terms of life that <clears throat> makes us consider uh, why we choose what we choose. And here you are practicing for families. Is there something that you have learned about what is the importance of family? Maybe it was your own family. Uh, to give your life to this calling, mm-hmm. which is family medicine, mm-hmm. uh, that whole kind of way of thinking about family. Uh, we have very fractured families in our world. Yeah. And I imagine you see a lot of people who come in who, who don't have a, a traditional family. Um, but, but what have you learned about what it is a good family? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I realize that family really is not always defined by blood you know it's really it's that community that village that has been able to get you through a really tough time and yeah you're right I mean being in the position I'm in I get to have these conversations with people that I never dreamt I would have and you find out man that the trauma that people go through in their in their childhood especially you know I'm I'm blown away by the the numbers of like adverse childhood events that occur, you Could know. You talk a little bit about what that means. Yeah. Um, so um, it could be anything from financial struggles with parents to kind of what someone would classically think of as a traumatic event, like a sexual assault or molestation or being physically abused, um, emotionally abused. Um, but really, the I'm really blown away by the abuse and and yes, the physical and the sexual, but you know, the, the psychosocial, mental, the being told from 
you know, age one, that they're not good enough, that that they're never going to amount to anything and that their thoughts and their feelings don't matter, you know? And so a lot of times I'm meeting people and they're just very vulnerable and you have to, you have to know that you're kind of starting at ground zero and that, that I'm not, I did not go to school to be a therapist, but that is kind of one of the hats I wear. And, but one of my bigger jobs is getting them to the people that they really need to see to really work on themselves from the inside out. Um, but yeah, trying to, man, meet someone where they're at and help them realize all the good that they have. You know, even when things are terrible, there's always so many good things and trying to focus on that, but also, also reminding people that they're a survivor. I think I, I commonly see like, wow, you have survived so much. You have been at war. You know, you were put in a place when you were a child that you never, you were given responsibilities you never should have been given. It wasn't fair. It wasn't your choice. So reminding people that like, not everything that they're going through right now is a choice that they made when they were a child. And I think that's really hard for some people to wrap their heads around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's hard. And we see these scores of ACE being predictors then of what kind of health you will have in the future, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so there's almost this movement to really not uh, pick apart your childhood, but at least be conscious of how are you carrying things then into certain relationships or Mm -hmm. have you not dealt with things that can almost um, get in the body like uh, a weight and and how do you help people to free themselves up from some of these high ACE scores that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard not to make someone feel like a statistic. You know, you never want to make them feel like a number or just another part of the process. Um, But yeah, just reminding them that these are, you know, we have kind of bringing it back to the data and the research and just saying, you know, this happened, was out of your control, but it happened. And here we are just like, you know what, like your family history, like you have a strong family history of diabetes and um, high cholesterol and high blood pressure. And we can't change that. But what we can do is alter, we can affect your risks by making changes by, you know, whether it's therapy, medications, social support, um, all of the above and just kind of helping remind them that they're not alone and that there's things that we can do, that they're not just a static, you know, this is the cards they were dealt and that's it. And this is always, it's always going to be terrible. And I just try to remind them that that's not true and we can change the future. There is a, a theologian, his name is Richard Rohr. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, he's, he's in a current state that he's asking people to really consider inclusion. Uh, he's a Franciscan, which is a, a type of a priest, and he runs this action center. But he has this line that he says, everything belongs. And I, I'm thinking of what you're saying right now in terms of that, because he mm-hmm. says, no one needs to be punished, scapegoated, or excluded. Everything belongs. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder this way that you are as a physician. Mm-hmm. It seems that for you, everything belongs. Uh, the way that you approach your family, the way that you see medicine. Um, How does a a community or a world begin to think through the importance of how healing takes place Mm -hmm. if everyone belongs? Oh, that's a good one. That's a deep one. Um, Hmm. Good question. I think we have a long way to come there. I think we don't really have a system that's built to accept you for where you're at and that you belong yet still help you be a better version of yourself. I think we're 
I think we have a really long way to go in that respect. Um, but I think as family docs, I mean, we're, you know, they always say we're in the trenches or we're in the front lines. I mean, we're always, you know, we try to use, yeah, the data and the research, but we're always like, we're, we're also like the real people trying to be there and, you know, help people through what they're going through. But, um, yeah, I think once again, just saying like, yes, you've been through this, that happened, but how do we, how do we get you to the other side and get you there safely? And, um, not always make you feel like you're a victim, like you're a survivor, but you're not always a victim, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that at all answered your question. No, it does. Because what you're saying is that you get through some of this based upon how you see yourself. So if I go through life and I just see myself as a victim, well, that's going to dictate then how I love, Mm -hmm. how I have a career, Mm -hmm. how I am as a mom, how I am as a dad. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a victim, I really don't belong. Right. And, and so how do you bring people to feel a sense that they're not a scapegoat, that they haven't been punished, but that they belong? To me, seems the whole reason we're in this holistic health right. movement mm-hmm. of inclusiveness, of integration. And I, I just wonder how do we help people to get there? Because it does seem to be a real healing story. Yeah. I mean, I wish, you know, it's hard because so many people, they feel like their their story is so unique, what they've been through that no one else has been through that. Mm. Um, And so I think so many people are so interested in having like one-on-one therapy, which I think is great. And everybody needs that so that they can feel completely open and unjudged and just let it all out there. But I, I do wish that there was more of a push for not your standard group therapy where everyone's sitting around in a circle, you know, spilling it all out. But just the idea that like, wow, like everyone's stories are wildly similar, you know, or they can be, if we can somehow, kind of, um, you know, make those bridges between people and their, and their aces, what they've been through and how to, how do they work through them together? Like how did someone else get through it? Maybe I could use some of those skills and all kind of being facilitated by, you know, obviously mental health uh, providers and professionals, but, um, and a lot of, I mean, we are working, I feel like the most successful programs I see are these kind of, um, integrated kind of, um, intensive outpatient kind of, um, structured programs. So it's a few hours a week. They're getting group therapy. They're getting one-on-one therapy. They're getting some medication management. They're getting some biofeedback, some meditation, yoga, like just really that whole holistic, you know, treatment because, you know, there's obviously a lot of moving parts, but yeah, that's where I see the most, the most success, of course, getting people to get there, you know, to be able to put their lives on hold, to do that, to be able to see that, that will, um, you know, in the end pay out, mm-hmm. you know, is, is sometimes tough, but. One of the things I've always watched you do is, uh, include people in your story, um, and how your mom and how your dad influenced you mm-hmm. and the story that you created. Do you see patients as they come to you trying to figure out how these elements, uh, work in their life, how they, can look back and say, well, this is why I am the way I am, or um, I have to let go of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just a, what is the test for the cholesterol or what is the test for you know, high blood pressure or these mm-hmm. types of things, but I imagine you're having a lot of conversations just about the relationships of oh, life. Oh, goodness. That's and, the majority of what I talk about. Why is that so hard for people to be in a relationship? Yeah. Uh, or maybe it, it's not. Yeah. I don't, you know, I think that 
I think a lot of people go into medicine too because they love they love black and white. They want mm. they want answers. They want lab results. They want imaging. They want to and and they kind of like the, a little bit of the hunt. They want the you know the classic doctor house, right? Like putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, looking for the zebras, like you know all that cool stuff. Um, but so many times it's you know, we, we do these basic workups and, you know, the classic is the patient that comes in for chronic fatigue mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. you know, and I always say, okay, you know what, we're in the North cause I'm in Duluth. You're probably not getting enough sun, enough sun. Let's, we can get a vitamin D level. Your insurance doesn't like to cover it, but we can check anyway. Um, but let's put you on vitamin D. Okay, great. So we do that. And then we're checking blood counts. You know, are you anemic? We're checking your thyroid. Everyone wants it to be their thyroid. Um, so I can't even tell you in one hand I can't count the number of cases where any of those labs are fruitful so I'm doing that to you know a lot of times yes I want to I got to make sure that's not going on and I think it is always a possibility Um, but a lot of times it's kind of a step in the right direction realizing at the same time that there's so many of these other outside stressors and events and um, things that happen to people that kind of create this chronic stress mm-hmm. and when our body is constantly in fight or flight instead of just kind of at a you know a basic homeostasis or what that fancy term we call is just like you're you're normal mm-hmm. um people don't realize they're literally expending energy all day long trying to fight off stressors and, and interpreting stimulus as very stressful when really it, it shouldn't be uh-huh. right we should be able to kind of just bat it off and move on Um, so when I, when I kind of explain that how stress can manifest in physical symptoms, I'm always like, it's so, it's kind of fun. Um, not in so, so much of a morbid way, but just kind of a, uh, like I get to connect with people when I literally see the light go on in their head, they're like, Oh wow. Yeah. I think you're onto something there, you know? So, and you know, and a lot, a lot of times these conversations end in us talking about therapy talking about changes that we can make in lifestyle, especially in self-care. Um, I treat a lot of women and we're terrible at self-care because we put everybody before ourselves. I mean, men do this too, but, um, you know, as a, as a working mother, you're, you're kind of, you know, it's just part of the game, right? Um, so it's fun to see them kind of reprioritize. And some sometimes that includes putting someone on an SSRI or a medication. Mm-hmm. Um, many times people come back and they're like, I don't know why I waited so long to make these changes and to do this. And uh, it's just, it's really nice to see people like get their life back and get their energy back and their selves, themselves back. So yeah, it's a lot of what I do. It's, it's a lot of, but it, that's the gray of medicine, which is, can be frustrating, but also the, probably the most rewarding when you see that the gray of medicine kind of, uh, turn into something treatable, something, um, actionable. It's awesome. It's really fun to see. That would probably mean that you yourself have to practice self-care. I mean, what are, what are the kind of nuggets that you do for yourself? The nuggets that I do, um, I get a massage once a month. Okay. So I do that. Um, I do like to shop. (laughs) God bless my mother. May she rest in peace. She is the best at finding the most amazing deal at TJ Maxx or Target or wherever. And so I always kind of love finding a a good deal from time to time. Um, I have recently, um, you know, I have two kids. My youngest is two and a half. And I'm finally at that point where I'm like, okay, I need to get serious about like 
what do the next 35 years look like? I need to start taking care of this vessel that I've been given. So um, doing a lot more um, yoga, doing more just active stuff. We're an active family. We hike and stuff, but there's also six months of the year we're stuck inside. So just trying to make a concerted effort to be physical um, and just feel better about myself. I get, I get probably seven hours of sleep a night. I wish it was eight, but seven's pretty good when I look at my husband, <laughs> who's getting more like five and a half to six. Um, we are good about getting babysitters. Like I think we're pretty good about being present when our kids are around. We have fun with them. We have lots of dance parties. We're always playing um, music and kids bop radio. Got to make it clean, right? Um, but then, you know, having the date nights, going out with friends, kind of reconnecting with people our own age group and um, and travel to and just being close with our family, although we're not physically living close together. We're always trying to kind of do it all, but in a healthy way. Yeah. I, I'm so struck because, you know, there is humor in the self-care to so not true. take so seriously. I mean, as a person who takes <clears throat> things very seriously, mm-hmm. how do you find uh, a laughter about approaching these things of self-care and know that it's not going to be a perfect process. I'm going to need my partner to help me with it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of, as I listen to people and watch them, it can't just be a solo activity of, uh, I'm going to be made to be happier. We're doing some research with uh, researcher Amy Bartels at the University of Nebraska, and she's studying the difference between eudaimonic and hedonic. And it's interesting because what you're talking about is not hedonic. This, it's all about me and what my happiness is. It's about the holistic well-being. Mm-hmm. It's about how I bring in my community, mm-hmm. um, how I try and understand what thriving means. I mean, you just talked about 35 years. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm lucky about the next three hours in terms of bedtime and stuff like that. But I mean... <laughs> When we think about our generations thriving, mm-hmm. one of the components that is tough is going on your phone and looking at how other people are portraying their right. thriving. Right. What do you say to patients? What do you say to people who really are spending so much time? There's, what do you say to patients who are spending so much time on social media mm-hmm. to gain a sense of their identity? Um, how does that enter into the conversation about self-care? Oh, that is the anti self-care is going on social media. Unfortunately, um, it completely detracts from your ability to look within, right? Cause all you're doing is looking externally. Um, we all know people who they're literally, their lives are falling apart yet. They're posting a picture of, you know, it's sunshiny rainbows and everything is perfect. Right. So it's, gosh, it's so deceiving. And, um, I think just, you know, I do my best to just remind patients and people around me that, Man, it's a snapshot and it's it's how some people cope with what they're going through is to only show the good stuff. Um, I also think there's a danger in showing all the bad stuff mm-hmm. on social media. You know, I mean, I think that you also have to, you really should work on, you know, yes, looking within. Not everyone's able to do that. I, I don't think I'm really great at that either. But really, once again, tapping into those really close relationships about like, who can you be vulnerable with? Like you need to find people that you can be vulnerable with because if you can't do that, then you're never going to be able to grow and change. Um, so I think that's a, a big part of it. Um, I mean, I know my husband is not on social media, hmm. so he, um, he's 38. He is a surgeon. He's got a lot of, 
you know, he's a very um, social guy, you know, could talk to a brick wall for three hours, super friendly. Um, But he just, he's like, I can remember him, you know, a couple years ago scrolling. He's like, what am I even looking at? I don't even, what am I doing? And he just deleted it all and he's never looked back. And so I think that can be really helpful for a lot of people, I think, are just taking a hiatus every now and then and kind of tapping into what's, what's real. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, not real happening mm-hmm. on social media. Um, but, yeah, I see it's really tough with our adolescent population, you know, watching them, even trying to have some conversations with them in the office, and they won't put that phone down. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit of a hard ass. I'm like, okay, you can put your phone down, uh-huh. take the earbuds out. Like, I'm right here. We're, you know, face-to-face. We're breathing oxygen in this room together. Like, let's, like, have a conversation. Um, and some parents, like you can see, I think they're, they, they've lost the power so long ago to exert any sort of parental, I mean, they forget that they truly are, they have the power until they're 18, until those kids leave. And they're, you see these 10, 11, 12 year olds that are just running the joint and you're like, whoa, like what happened here? Like there was a tipping point, something changed, you know, early on where, you know, and I see, I see why it happens. I mean, people are trying to do it all and do more with less. And then you have social media and the screens and the, the vaping and the, oh, my gosh, it's, like, unreal what's going on in these schools. But, like, don't forget that in that house, it's your house and it's you have the power. Now, here I am. I have young kids. So I'm going to be eating my words, I'm sure, in 10 years. And I'm going to be like, oh, my gosh, birth control for everybody. <laughs> Nobody's allowed. I'm chaining my children to the, you know, to the basement. Um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously easier for me to say I haven't, I haven't lived the adolescent parent life yet. But You know, the last comments around birth control and, and these aspects of sexuality, mm-hmm. um, you're seeing a lot of people on a spectrum. And at least in my own experience, one of the most important lessons in life is to be authentic and to be who you are. Mm-hmm. How do you help people who are looking to have a healing story that really needs an integration of their sexuality? Um, whether that be adolescence, whether it be, you know, people who just uh, are trying to figure out what do they want to tell the world they are? Mm-hmm. Um, what are ways that you find uh, helps people to get to an authentic life? I think one thing that is has nothing to do with me is our system, our healthcare system, has begun to ask people what pronouns that they prefer. So instead of, you know, do you want she, her, do you want... Um, he, his, do you want they, their? And like, I think that really helps because sometimes that's the first time anyone has ever asked how they like to be referred to. Um, Because so, so much of who we are is defined by not only our name, but like our, our pronouns, like how do others refer to us? So I think that that is huge. And I've seen, I've seen that it bring up a lot of conversations. You know, I noticed that in some patients I had never, ever thought I had assumed they were, you know, but you know, biologically female that they would want to be referred to as her and and um, she, and so it's it sparks a lot of good conversation. Um, one thing I do very early on is that around age eleven and twelve, I kick parents out. Hmm. So at well child visits, I kick parents out. Um, I ask about I ask about risky behaviors. 
um, about sex. I ask about alcohol. I ask about vaping and drugs and all that stuff and rock and roll. Um, but then I also ask when I'm talking about sex, I always ask like, are you finding that you're attracted to anybody? And they're like, uh, you know, I always get them. And then I say like girls, boys, both. And I am blown away by the number of people that say both. Mm. And I think that that's, you know, I don't know if that's the first time they're saying it, but they say it very, a lot of times very comfortably. And so I just try to kind of support that and just say, you know, if you have questions, like your parents are always the, the best place to go because they know you and they love you. Um, but I'm here and I, I put a little rainbow flag in all my rooms. I like hide it in a corner. So I feel like if kids were sitting in there or anyone was sitting in there that and looking around, they may be like, where's Waldo? And they'd see the rainbow flag and just know they're in a safe place, you know? So that's, um, another thing that I do, but, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very fluid, crazy world that we live in and it's yeah, a, it's it. a, can be a real unsafe world. Yeah. And I think about you and what you're trying to exemplify in the home, in your own home. If there isn't safety to be who you are in your own home, then mm-hmm. we know we see problems um, clinically. We see them psychologically, even spiritually. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does one create a safe space in their own home? Oh, uh, how do you, how do you find, Wayne Jonas wrote this book, uh, How Healing Works. And he talks a lot about his house and he talks about his wife coming home after cancer treatment and, and they just created a space that she could heal. And it's, it's confirming to me as you talk today that a lot of what you're able to do in your life has a lot to uh, do with your kitchen table. Uh, a lot to do with uh, your TV room, a, a lot to mm-hmm. do with um, places where you recreate in the house. How, how do you make a house a safe space? Well, I mean, that it, I think that's defined differently um, home to home, of course. But for us, I mean, definitely we have we have nightly dinners. I mean, every right. we're at the dinner table. I mean, once again, we don't have older kids that are in like six sports and they're not driving themselves anywhere. So we still make the rules and they're not going anywhere without us. But um, yeah, every night we have dinner. Every night we pray and we say what we're thankful for. And we kind of bring it back to that. Most nights we have, we really, we crank the music and we just kind of dance and like get it out there and like just make crazy moves and no one gets judged for like doing a really super weird move or taking their, like taking their shirt off. I mean, my kids like to be naked. They're little and like, okay, I mean, keep your underwear on, but okay, fine. You can take the rest of your clothes off and dance around naked. It's fine. Um, yeah. And just kind of, I think, I think humor is a big part of it. I, you know, I use humor a lot in medicine. I find that it's, um, something that really helps people open up. And so, you know, just being able to laugh at each other and laugh at yourself. I think a little bit of self-deprecation goes a long way. Uh Um, so I'm always, you know, we're telling stories at the, at the table, of course, always, you know, being careful of HIPAA, but you know, my husband and I always telling just ridiculous, like the stupid things that we did, like, you know, like, I think I (laughs) classic example, I did a rectal exam on a guy the other day and I'm like, Oh, like, you know, your prostate kind of feels a little like fluffy. It's kind of how we describe maybe like in an, a benign and large prostate. And he's like, oh, that's weird. I had a prostate removed. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, you just have those moments where you're like, okay, maybe those where you're like 
hemorrhoids that you've been internal hemorrhoids that were bleeding. Maybe that's what I was feeling. You know, like you just you're I'm not perfect. Some people just drove off the road trying to create the visual that you're doing. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean if you can't this we live in a crazy world and if you can't find humor especially in medicine, oh my goodness, yeah. I would be done. I would be just well, done. Well, it, it does bring up this notion a lot of people are studying about burnout. And it's not just related to the physician population, but we're seeing it in other teachers have some of the highest burnout. Mm-hmm. We also know that female family doctors have some of the highest suicide rates as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there things that you're seeing in terms of the profession that are rays of hope? Um, because we're seeing 54% physicians burnt out. And are there ways that uh, people could use this humor, uh, find this community, or uh, it's just, it's, it's a changing, evolving yeah, community? Yeah, I, you know, and I, you and I discussed a little bit earlier about, you know, burnout is so common and we're, we're getting really good at identifying it. We just really kind of suck at knowing what to do next. Right. Um, which is, I think that there's so much... Hope. I think there's a lot of people that want to to really develop that data and help us figure out what to do when things are going south. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I feel like you know, I'm I'm a little isolated in the Northwoods of Minnesota. You know, we um, we're kind of like a really big small town, so we don't have a lot of like the huge city metro pressures um, and we have we're kind of outdoorsy so there's a lot of like good ways to connect with nature which I think helps um, and good work-life balance but yeah I think just kind of it's all about culture I think for us like we really are we're well supported nobody's in our office past 4 30 on a Friday like the, I think there's just this culture where we are you know this kind of west coast relaxed you know I'm not going to work too hard there's people at the hospital that are taking care of the hospital patients. Like, I don't need to be worrying about my people, my patients all day long. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't have a good answer for that. Why, well, what people can do, but. Well, I mean, what you're talking about is a calling. Mm-hmm. And that is something that this podcast has always been very interested in how people have a sense of their calling. Yeah. Um, there is an author that I brought for you who mm-hmm. I think reminds me of you in, in some of the writings and I wanted to read you this piece and see what, what you thought of it, okay? Because it okay. does deal with nature and it deals with what we're talking about in terms of this calling. Mark Napo says, Every year around the scalp of the planet, the caribou run the same path of migration along the edge of the Arctic Circle. They are born with some innate sense that calls them to this path. And every year along the way, packs of coyote wait to feed on the caribou. And every year, despite the danger, the caribou return and make their way. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I don't know. I think most days, you know, especially with the internet and all of the information that's at everyone's fingertips all the time, you know, I'm constantly kind of fighting against the Googlers. You know, I know every day I go in, I know I show up, I'm going to do it anyway. I know that I'm going to be met with resistance with, oh, well, I read that and I did the research that, um, and not saying that necessarily that I'm, I'm no statistics guru. You know, I was not put on this earth to interpret literature by any means. Um, but, you know, kind of every day I, I know that 
I'm going to be met with that. And then I'm going to, I'm going to meet people that are not going to, to drink my Gatorade. You know, they're not going to get on board. They're not going to ever think that what I'm saying is the truth. And so sometimes I'm like, why are you here? But that's okay. If you just wanted to come and chat about it, that's cool. I'm down. But, um, you know, but it's, it's every now and then you're, you're going to, you're going to connect with someone. You're going to get them to kind of see that maybe the way that they've been thinking their whole life is maybe not necessarily the right way, you know? And I always grasp, I get those, those young kind of 20 year olds that are like, well, my mom doesn't, you know, believe in the flu vaccine. And I'm like, you're 20 now. It's time to probably start making your own decisions. Like you can kind of do your own reading. You can, but like, be careful of your sources and this is kind of how you approach it. And, you know, and I just hope that maybe the next few years when I see them again, like maybe I'm going to start to see, you know, the small changes. And that's, I mean, that's part of growing up and because the adolescent brain continues to develop until you're like 26. So got to be patient there. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, you just keep, I keep going because I know that at the end there's, there's still so many people that are being helped, I feel like, you know, and I, I'm lucky. I feel like I, I, I get feedback. People tell me like, wow, like this is really great. Like I should have been on this medicine years ago. I've never like, I don't cry at the drop of a hat anymore or I don't, it always comes back to mental health. I feel like that's probably the most rewarding thing I do, but, um, or, you know, wow, like that was, those were early signs of strokes. And I'm so glad that we did all that work up and I got on these meds. So it's not happening again. And I can watch my grandkids grow up and, you know, so for all those, you know, every time you're going to have someone that's going to jump the gun and judge you or think that, you know, that, that I'm in it for the money or that I'm getting money from the pharmaceutical companies for giving you the flu vaccine. Oh, that's just cracks me up every time. Um, that really I'm, I'm, I tell people like I'm in the business of prevention. Like I would love if I could just prevent disease. If I can't prevent it, I want to treat it. And if, if a medication doesn't either lengthen your life or improve your quality of life, I'm, I don't like it. So, you know, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a fun challenge. I, I like being challenged. I think I don't think you go into medicine if you want to just like sit back and watch it all unfold in front of you. But anyway, and it is you are creating a life that guides people in preventing, even if along the path there's going to be the coyote, mm-hmm. and and it's going to happen. Yet one of the great things that you offer our world is the courage to keep walking on the path. So I want to thank you for doing that. Thank you. If, if people wanted to get a hold of you. They're moved by what you said. How could they find you? Oh, how do you find me? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I really have like a public way to find me. You're practicing. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm in Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah. So I guess my, probably my, my work email maybe. So even though I don't ever refer myself as Nicole, that's what I am professionally. So it would be Nicole.Greshel at EssentiaHealth.org. Greshel's G-R-O-E-S-C-H-L. And it rhymes with special, like you said earlier. Special so, Greshel. Special Greshel. So special Greshel, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Time heals all wounds. Join us for our next episode of Healing Stories.